This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Rely Upon the Lord Despite Uncertainties. In the first half, Amy Tanner shares her address, The Gift of Uncertainty. Then in the second half, Cinzia Donatelli-Noble speaks on Rely Upon the Lord. It took me a very long time to write this devotional address. I was plagued with uncertainty about what to say from the moment I was asked to speak. Two months later, I had written and discarded pages and pages of drafts and half-formed thoughts. I did not know what the Lord wanted me to say today. I did not know what I wanted to say to you today. And so finally, one week before I was required to submit the text of my address, I accepted that perhaps what I needed to talk about today was not knowing. Perhaps strangely in a church where from a very young age we learn to say the words, I know, the thing I am most certain of in this life is that we do not know all things. In fact, in the grand scale of truth, it's quite possible that statistically speaking, we don't know anything. And by that I mean that because God and truth are so vast and so big, the things we know are so small in comparison as to render them essentially nothing. So today I want to talk about this idea of not knowing and about finding God in our uncertainty. I also want to add a caveat that I'm speaking from my own experience. Paul, in his epistle to the Corinthians, talks about spiritual gifts, the gifts of wisdom, of knowledge, of faith, of healing. I will openly confess that I was probably not given the gift of knowledge. At times in my life, I have had great faith and I have had great hope, but in general, my knowledge has often felt a little tenuous. But I've also come to believe that uncertainty can be every bit as much a gift as knowledge, and so I approach you today in the spirit of uncertainty. I would like to approach several aspects of not knowing. My hope is that in at least one of them you find something helpful or of value for living your life, attending school, developing your testimony, and going out into the world to do whatever it is you will do on this earth. First. I think it's helpful to talk a little bit about knowledge itself because we use the phrase I know in many ways that are not all the same. Consider the following statements. I know that 2 plus 3 equals 5. I know that on a clear day the sky is blue. I know that I love my parents. All of these statements use the term I know, but the way I know each of these things is not the same. Take the first statement, and this one is easy for me as a math teacher. If I take two distinct objects, say M&Ms, and combine them with three more M&Ms, I will have five M&Ms. Although I've come to recognize that truth in mathematics is far more complex than we usually imagine, it's nevertheless very difficult to dispute the statement that two plus three equals five. But now consider the second statement, which on the surface seems equally indisputable. I believe that all of you will agree with me that on a clear day, the sky is blue. But I do not know that when we look at the sky, we see the same thing. And if a person is unable to see the sky at all, what does it mean that the sky is blue? Scientifically, we can speak about light and wavelengths, but this does not reflect my experience of seeing blue. In fact, I recently learned that ancient languages didn't even have a word for blue, and that in lacking a word to describe the color, people who spoke these languages may have been incapable of even seeing the color blue. To explore this possibility, researcher Guy Deutscher decided to do what countless researcher parents of children have done and experiment on his own child. When she was very young, he was careful to never describe the color of the sky to her. Finally, one day he asked her to look up and describe the color, but she had no idea what to say. The sky at first appeared completely colorless to her. This complicates my statement that the sky is blue. 
Finally, when I consider the last statement, that I know I love my parents, I have to concede that there is no objective way to measure this. In fact, I have failed embarrassingly on a few simple measures of love, like last year when my dad called me on his birthday and I didn't even say happy birthday to him. I'm still sorry about that, Dad. Um, Still, I can say that I know with 100% certainty that I do love my parents, and I truly believe they do know the same. It's just a different kind of knowledge than the knowledge that 2 plus 3 equals 5. When it comes to matters of the Spirit, we frequently hear the words, I know. I know that the Church is true. I know that Jesus loves me. I know that obedience brings blessings. I think we sometimes assume that I know needs to mean I know in the same way that I know that 2 plus 3 equals 5. But we can't know these things in the same way, because they are different types of truth and differently accessible to us. What I think we usually mean is that we are equally confident in those things, and even then some of us are and some of us are not. Not all of us have been given the gift of knowledge. I believe it is important to understand the kind of knowledge we should be seeking. Knowledge that 2 plus 3 equals 5 is fairly set, but knowledge about the color of the sky is born of our experience with the sky. And not only is the color of the sky ever-changing, but as we gain experience, our ability to describe what we are seeing And even our very ability to see can change and grow, just as our ability to know God can change and grow throughout our lives. If I assume that knowing God is like knowing that 2 plus 3 equals 5, and then I experience something that conflicts with my understanding, I have to go back to the drawing board with all of arithmetic. But if knowing God is more like knowing the color of the sky, apparent conflicts with my current understanding have the potential to expand rather than shatter my view. Knowledge of things of the Spirit is also manifested in how this knowledge drives our actions. It is far less important that I love my parents and that I know I love my parents than it is that I show that love to them and continue to try even when my expressions are imperfect. Knowledge that the Church is true or God lives or Jesus loves us is less important than what our faith and hope compel us to do. Knowledge of God's love is important, but how I take that love and allow it to work change in myself and in the world around me, even when my efforts are imperfect, is far more important. Knowledge that is complete and certain can also be limiting and, quite honestly, not all that interesting. A living knowledge that changes, grows, adapts, and motivates us to action is a knowledge that embraces states of uncertainty and not knowing, because these states lead us towards change and growth. In fact, as humans, we tend to move on quickly from simple facts, like 2 plus 3 equals 5, to complex questions of what we can do with these facts, or to questions that stretch our understanding past its apparent limits. Math is much bigger and much more open than 2 plus 3 equals 5. God is much bigger than we can imagine. I want to turn in another direction now and address another side of not knowing, and I'd like to begin with a story. One day, while I was working on this devotional address at home, with my four-year-old daughter playing on the couch next to me, our dog Jin barked at the back door to be let into the house. Can you let Jin inside? I asked my daughter, because what are children for except to do the small tasks that you don't feel like doing yourself? But instead of jumping up happily to help, my daughter informed me Jin did not bark. Well, I told her, I just heard him bark. Jin is not outside, she responded. Well, I said, I am actually looking at the door, and I see him standing outside. He is not outside, she insisted. And because I was working on a devotional address about knowledge, I decided to do that experiment-on-your-own-children thing. And I asked, do you know that Jin is not outside? 
With great confidence, she looked at me and said, I know that Jin is not outside. At this point, I got up myself and led our dog inside, and my daughter exclaimed, Oh, Mommy, Jin was outside. This genuine surprise convinced me that she had not been lying, when in the face of visual and aural evidence, she informed me that our dog was not actually outside, barking to be let in. I believe that she really knew that the dog was not outside, because she wanted him to be not outside, because it was inconvenient for her if he was outside, because she would then have to stop playing and go let him in. Um, It makes for a funny little anecdote when it's about my determined, headstrong little daughter, but we ourselves do this all the time. When we know something, we are likely to hold on to that knowledge as tightly as we can, even when we are mistaken. And we usually don't realize we are doing this. Of course we don't, because we know. Our human minds are built to make sense of the world around us, to categorize and evaluate and put our experiences and observations into simple boxes. The ability to create order and organization out of the chaos that surrounds us is incredibly important to our survival and well-being. But a consequence of this well-developed human ability is that we all think we know and understand far more than we actually do. One of my favorite stories from the history of mathematics is the story of the parallel postulate. Around 300 BC, Euclid of Alexandria wrote a book called Elements, in which he essentially built geometry on the foundation of five postulates, or statements, that could be accepted as truth without needing additional reasoning or argument. Four of his five postulates are pretty straightforward. One, for example, was that given two points, we can draw a straight line connecting those two points. That seems pretty obvious. But the fifth postulate would give mathematicians grief for the next two millennia. This postulate reads, if a straight line intersecting two straight lines makes the interior angles on the same side less than two right angles, the two straight lines, if produced indefinitely, meet on that side on which the angles are less than two right angles. Intuitive, right? Um, It's a mouthful, but essentially what this postulate does is allow us to believe some things about parallel lines or lines that will never meet that intuitively seem like they must be true about parallel lines, except that mathematicians weren't convinced that we should need a postulate to do this. The fifth postulate sounded like a conclusion about geometric space that needed to be argued or proved rather than a conclusion that could be put forth without argument. For centuries, mathematicians attempted to find a way to make this argument using just the first four postulates and maybe a new, more self-evident postulate. One person who worked on this problem in the early 18th century was Girolamo Saccheri. He attacked the problem using quadrilaterals, and he thought he succeeded, finally stating in his Proposition 33 that essentially a particular counterresult would be, quote, repugnant to the nature of the straight line. Basically, Sakari knew what a straight line should do, and he knew what parallel lines should do, and ultimately, his argument for the truth of the parallel postulate hinged on the fact that without it, straight lines ended up behaving in ways that were repugnant to their nature. But a century later, over 2,000 years after Euclid wrote his Elements, a handful of mathematicians finally asked, what if we're wrong about the nature of straight lines? What if in some spaces lines behave one way, but in other spaces, they behave in a completely different way. And by letting go of their knowledge, they discovered something fascinating, which was that if they reconsidered the way parallel lines work, geometry actually did not fall apart. In fact, by tweaking this one condition, they managed to create or perhaps discover a strange, new, wonderful geometry that we now call hyperbolic geometry, and which was every bit as mathematically valid as the Euclidean geometry you learned in high school although it is much harder for humans to wrap their heads around.
Mathematics, when you spend time with it, has a particular kind of beauty that is not always conveyed well in our school experiences. And hyperbolic geometry has its own beauty, both mathematically but also visually. But opening the door to this beauty required humans to admit that what they thought they knew could actually be wrong. I think it is important for us to question where what we think we know might be wrong, especially if when being wrong would be inconvenient or uncomfortable to us. I might ask myself, am I certain that I truly understand another person's heart and intentions? Or could it be that my own experiences make it difficult for me to understand where they are coming from? When I disagree with someone, am I certain that I am right and they are wrong? Or might I have blind spots and could I learn from someone else's perspective? When another person's way of speaking, acting, thinking, worshiping, etc. is unfamiliar to me, am I certain that my discomfort is a lack of the Spirit, or have I just not yet learned how to see God in a particular setting? Am I certain that I have a full understanding of a particular gospel principle or commandment, or could I learn something from asking questions or listening to another person's experiences? Accepting that we may not know what we think we know does not mean we need to let go of all certainty or conviction. Rather, openness to being wrong can be a humble position of faith where hope for things which are not seen can flourish as we allow ourselves to accept that there are things which are not seen to us. Finally, it would be easy for me to frame the topic of uncertainty as uncertainty until, with the expectation that not knowing is just a step on the process to knowing. But while we might gain greater understanding throughout our lives, there is also no end to not knowing. And in fact, many times in our lives, we will face times when answers do not come, when not knowing is a permanent state. One of the things I have always loved about the gospel is the promise of answers and assurance to those who diligently seek. In fact, the story of our church in the latter days could be said to begin with James 1.5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. I myself have experienced times in my life when I have felt guidance and answers flow to me from heaven. But in our hunger and thirsting after answers, we can come to see the entire purpose of the gospel as providing answers and overlook the mystery of God and the importance of questions. When I was young, I believed in the God of lost things. I have several memories of frantically praying to Heavenly Father that we could find that one last library book that was due today because we couldn't go to the library until we had found every book and I was sure I had looked everywhere. In retrospect, it's easy to look at the low stakes of that situation and see silliness in my frantic pleas. It's easy to explain away the fact that the book was always found eventually. But still, I have had a small handful of specific experiences where I felt an inconsequential prayer was answered in a way that was difficult for me to explain away. Not long ago, I watched my young son experience this for the first time himself, when, after a simple prayer, we immediately located keys that we had been searching for for days. I do not know if these are answers to prayers, but at the times that they happened, they felt like God reaching out to me in love. A difficulty most of us face as we grow from childhood faith to adult faith is the question of why God would answer a prayer for lost keys, but not answer prayers that are far more consequential—prayers about major life decisions, prayers for answers to perplexing questions, prayers for healing and recovery from terrible illness, prayers for peace in a world beset by tragedy. In spite of this, I still personally believe in a God of lost keys. 
and that God sometimes answers those prayers not in spite of their inconsequence, but because of it. I believe that an answer to a prayer about lost keys can be a message of love from our heavenly parents who know that sometimes in matters of more consequence, we will struggle to see their hands in our lives. This life is not the time for us to receive all answers, nor is it the time for everything to be made right. Sometimes God will reveal His will to us, but many times, in spite of our faith, we are required to move forward in uncertainty. This time in your life is a time of decision-making. I know from experience and from my work as an academic advisor that sometimes it can feel overwhelming. When I was in my mid to late 20s, I remember looking back one year over the previous decade and realizing that I had made a major life-changing decision every single year of that decade. It felt exhausting. The pace of major decision-making has slowed down for me, but it has not stopped. Making potentially life-changing decisions, it turns out, is just a part of adulthood. The role God plays in making these decisions, however, is not always constant. Sometimes you will just know on your own what you want to do, and God is there to play a supporting role. This is how I felt about my decision to come to BYU as an undergraduate. I had no grand revelation. It was just where I wanted to come. At other times, you may feel that God leads you in a very specific direction, maybe even a direction you wouldn't have chosen for yourself. When I was deciding where to go for my doctoral program, I knew where I wanted to go, but had several powerful spiritual experiences that sent me in another direction. To this day, I have great certainty that in spite of the challenges, it was exactly where I needed to be for those five years. But at other times, you won't have certainty. You won't be certain about what God wants you to do, and you won't be certain about what you want to do. When I finished my doctoral program, I felt lost on both of those levels. I thought that 11 years of higher education should have left me with a clear sense of what I wanted to be when I grew up, but instead those waters felt muddier than they had ever felt. I thought that by that point in my life I should feel more confident that I could hear and know the will of the Lord, but right then it seemed that the heavens were silent. In that moment, the only thing I could do was move forward. I wanted to move forward along the right path, but the only thing I could do at that time was move forward along a path. I wanted to know that everything was going to work out for the best, but that was not something I could know. Embracing uncertainty is hard, but at some point in our lives, it is the only thing we can do. I have long loved the story of the brother of Jared. He experienced plenty of guidance from the Lord as he and his family and friends were led toward the Promised Land, but the part of the story I love most is when the Lord made him answer his own question. He had followed the Lord's instructions to build barges, but there is a problem. The vessels were sealed and windowless, and as a result, there was no light within the vessels. When the brother of Jared approached the Lord, he appeared to expect an answer. O Lord, he said, I have done even as thou hast commanded me, and I have prepared the vessels for my people. And behold, there is no light in them. Behold, O Lord, wilt thou suffer that we shall cross this great water in darkness? But instead of providing the brother of Jared with a solution, the Lord tells him what he probably already knew. You can't make windows, and you can't have fire. And then he turns it back to the brother of Jared and essentially asks, What do you think? Most of the time, when I truly don't know what to do, I would just rather have God tell me what to do because I'm pretty sure I might make a mess of things and that God could keep me from making a mess of things. And when left to our own devices, as we so often are, when we are left to press forward in the face of uncertainty, as we so often are, eventually we will all make a decision we regret, or hurt someone we intended to help, or follow a path to a dead end, or find ourselves at the wrong place at the wrong time. 
The brother of Jared thought about the Lord's question and decided to produce sixteen stones from molten rock for the Lord to touch so that they might shine. Do not be angry with thy servant because of his weakness, he said, but you have given us a commandment that we must call upon thee, that from thee we may receive according to our desires. And the Lord granted him his desire and reached out his hand to touch the stones and make them shine. In embracing the uncertainties of life and moving forward in spite of knowing that all might not turn out as we would hope or like, we create our own stones for the Lord to touch and turn to light. Maybe something good will happen when we move forward in darkness. Maybe something bad will happen. Probably we'll get a little bit of both. But God can touch all of those stones. If we make our decision and offer our decision up to the Lord, He can turn all our stones to light. He can give us opportunities to do good, build relationships, find faith, change and grow, even with the stoniest of stones that we offer Him. As a teacher, I have spent a lot of time carefully planning lessons. I articulate learning goals, create assignments and activities and discussion questions aimed at meeting those learning goals, anticipate student thinking and how I might respond to that student thinking, but my best lessons are often those that invite an element of uncertainty, where I don't know exactly what students will say or how they will approach a particular problem, and they don't either. And the truly transcendent lessons, the ones where I come home from work and can't stop talking to my husband about the amazing things that happened in class, are always the ones where something happened that I could not plan or predict. It is at the cusp of uncertainty that the real magic happens. God as the master teacher would certainly allow for that uncertainty in his lesson plans for our lives. And it is as we let go of our need for knowledge and certainty that God can step into our lives in his expansiveness and work true miracles. A few weeks ago, my husband and I took a trip to Boston. There are many beautiful old churches in Boston, and so on Sunday morning we decided to take advantage of the opportunity, and we attended a church service in the Old South Church downtown. The service, the rituals, the music were all unfamiliar to me, and stepping outside of the familiar helped me to pay a different kind of attention than I often do in my familiar, comfortable Sunday church experiences. One hymn particularly struck me with its psalm-like sentiment. It opened with an expression of uncertainty. O oh God, why do you feel so far from me? And as we sang through the four verses, I found myself expecting a turning point that never came, expecting the hymn to conclude with something along the lines of, God, you may feel far from me, but I know you are there. Instead, each verse continued its questioning. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? Is God even there? Does God care? There was no resolution, only questions, and for days I could not stop thinking about this hymn. For all the scriptures and talks that exist about certainty and knowledge, we can miss the mystery and wonder that come at the edges of our certainty where we do not know. Nephi confessed, I know that God loveth his children, nevertheless I do not know the meaning of all things. In Alma we are reminded that faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things and that there are many mysteries which are kept that no one knoweth them save God himself. Jacob expressed his wonder at the mystery of God. Behold, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord. How unsearchable are the depths of the mysteries of him, and it is impossible that man should find out all his ways. To me, it is a beautiful mystery that I can fail to fully comprehend God, but that nevertheless, in my own incomprehension, I can feel that I have some understanding of God's infinite love for me. I am not always comfortable with uncertainty, but certainty can be a constraint.
When we are able to make space for uncertainty in our lives and for the possibility of things that lie beyond our comprehension, we can come closer to God, who knows us intimately, even in our human state, we are prevented from fully knowing God. As Paul said so beautifully, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall, shall I know even as also I am known. In this life, we know only in part. And in fact, the more I learn, the more I see that I do not know. But I also believe that God knows us completely, that in our uncertainty we can accept God's love for us as certain and constant. We may not know how God will turn our stones to light, but we can have hope that God will turn our stones to light. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Rely on the Lord Despite Uncertainties. We've just heard from Amy Tanner. After the break, we'll return with Cinzia Donatelli-Noble for Rely Upon the Lord. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Rely on the Lord Despite Uncertainties. Next is Cinzia Donatelli-Noble, Chair of the BYU Department of French and Italian at the time of this address, titled Rely Upon the Lord. Today, I'm going to talk about something in which I have a strong testimony and in which I firmly believe. I can say without a doubt that my whole life has been a miracle. The very day I was born, some medical complications arose, and the doctor did not have any hope for my survival. Almost all of the other infants in similar situations had died a few days after birth. But I was a tiny little fighter, and the Lord preserved me. My life began with a miracle, and a miracle it has been indeed ever since. I'm sure that if each one of you now pauses and thinks about your own life circumstances, all of you can think of the many instances when you have been helped, preserved, guided, healed, or when you witness a miracle. We are all entitled to such blessings, and we receive them daily, because we are children of a Heavenly Father who loves us and takes care of us. However, often we forget where these blessings come from, and we tend to believe that we succeed because we are strong, intelligent, or even handsome. We need to recognize more the Lord's hand in our life to be worthy of His blessings and to be humble in receiving them. Often, when I witness a miracle, I don't immediately recognize it as such, but I think that it was a circumstance or my own ability in accomplishing a certain task. I'm glad that the Lord humbles me and that He soon reminds me that it wasn't I, but that His hand was involved. When I think of this, I can't help but remember an experience a frightening one. From many years ago, I had a two-year-old boy. That boy is now sitting with his sister in this audience today and has become a handsome young man, 
At least I think he's handsome, but I'm his proud mother. That day, 12 years ago, early in the morning, I was busy getting ready to come to school and briefly stepped out of the room where we were. I left the room for just a couple of minutes. I was sure that Alessandro was safe. He was just playing with his toys. I did know that he had gotten hold of a little candy container with a small plastic cap on it. As he put the container in his mouth, as toddlers do, the plastic cap got loose and lodged in his throat. He coughed a couple of times, then the cap went in deeper in his throat and clogged it completely. In the other room, I was almost done doing whatever I was doing. I heard him cough and I thought, I'll give Sandro some cough medicine in a moment, as soon as I'm done here. And I continued with my business. Then I don't know what happened. Something, someone, took me from the room I was in and I found myself by my son's side. Up to this day, I do not remember consciously deciding to go to him, going through the hallway and approaching him. I simply found myself at his side. I saw that his lips had turned blue and that he was not breathing. I could not forget the fearful look in his eyes, pleading me to help him. I took him and gave him the Heimlich maneuver once, then twice. Nothing happened. I was shaking hard with apprehension. Sandra was becoming limp. I cried to the Lord, Help me, Lord, help me, save my child. I tried the maneuver a third time with a strength that I did not have, but with the strength that the Lord gave me. And I pushed hard at the bottom of his sternum. The plastic cap came out with the speed of a bullet and dented the kitchen wall. <laughs> I started crying. Sandra started crying and coughed again, spitting some blood. I thought that I had broken something inside his chest, for I had pushed so hard. I then attempted to call Dr. Willis, a dear friend of ours and our family physician. I took the phone receiver in my hand and tried to dial up the number. I could not do it. My hands were shaking so hard that I couldn't direct them to the right numbers. Finally, I managed to call and the to doctor told me not to worry that probably the cap had scratched the, bro the boy's throat and that the bleeding would cease. In fact, he stopped bleeding and I sat down on the couch with Alessandro in my arms, crying and thanking the Lord for his help. The following three days, I had absolutely no strength in my whole body. I know that whatever was necessary to save my son never came from me. The Lord loved us so much and came to our rescue when we needed him the most. I pray that I never, never forget the source of that strength that I needed that day and that I can always remember to be thankful for it. We can trust in the Lord. He does never forget any of us or any of our needs. Sometimes we do not get what we ask for. 
But let's stop and think for a minute. Maybe we're not supposed to get what we think we need. Even if our desires are just, maybe it's not the right time in our life, or maybe it's never going to be the right time in this mortal life. And we need to totally trust in the Lord to put ourselves in his hands and to accept our lot in life. This is not easy, but if we are close to the Spirit, it will be easier for us to accept what comes to us. When my father was deathly ill with cancer, I earnestly prayed that he would be healed, that his life would be spared. He was such a good man, he didn't deserve to suffer so. Then, as the illness progressed, the Lord touched my heart and my prayers changed. I asked that my mother and I would receive strength, patience, and an accepting attitude for whatever we were going to face. The Lord blessed us, and we were able to accept the passing of my dad. Even if the loss was great and the loneliness in our hearts deep, we felt peace in our souls. Several years ago, I had a friend an older friend who had many health problems. As she grew older, several physical ailments plagued her. She often complained about her situation and became depressed. I tried to help her, but for some reason I couldn't really reach out and felt frustrated myself. I sought advice from my dear mother-in-law and expressed to her my inadequacy in helping my friend. Sister Noble was herself an older lady, with several physical limitations. She listened to me, thought a little, and then said a few, but very wise words. She said, Your friend should have more faith and trust in the Lord. It is true. If we give of ourselves freely to the Lord, our burdens will be lifted and our hearts will be consoled. Several examples of hope and trust in the Lord have come to me from you, the young, beautiful, faithful students of this university. Over ten years ago, I had an excellent student in my Italian classes. Let's call her Debbie. If she is listening, we'll recognize her story. Debbie was always punctual to class and in her assignments. She had always been an A student in the several classes she had taken from me. That semester, she was again enrolled in another one of my courses. One day, she had not arrived by 10 a.m. when the class began. It was the first time that she had been absent. I thought that she was probably ill. At 10 minutes after 10, she walked into the class and quietly sat down at one of the desks. I noted in my mind that that was strange, and then went on with my lesson. At the end of the class, she waited for everyone to leave. Then she approached me. She said, Sister Noble, I'm sorry I was late for class today, but last night I had my third miscarriage in fourth months. Her eyes were glossy with tears for the sorrows of having lost a much-desired baby, and she was shaking a little. My dedicated, sweet, 
Dear Debbie, I told her to go home immediately and to rest, and that we'll worry about the assignments later. She was discouraged by the recurring problem in her desire to become a mother, but serene in her countenance and faithful in her attitude. She trusted in the Lord, and she knew that everything would be fine, that if she and her husband were faithful and strong, the Lord would bless them with or without children in this mortal life. I will never forget that day with Debbie. I admired her faith and strength and hoped that I could have a fraction of it myself. I told her tongue-in-cheek that I would fail her if I found out that she didn't take the day off and got some rest. After a few years, I received a phone call from Debbie. She told me that she had two children and that she and her husband were very happy. Debbie, wherever you are, I will never forget you and your example. Thank you for it. Our human knowledge is so very limited. I often wonder how we can ever trust it. As I teach Italian 20th century literature, we read from many wonderful authors, men and women who have witnessed the horrors of two world wars, of fascism and of Nazism. At the beginning of that century, Italy and Europe were going through a time of decadence when people didn't know the purpose of life. In Italy, this sentiment was even more acute since the new country united in 1861 after centuries of foreign servitude and the sacrifice of many patriots had looked to the future with hopes of political renovation and technological enhancements. People soon found out how feeble the foundations of human strength were and began asking themselves the same eternal questions. Who am I? Where do I come from? What am I doing here? Where am I going? Nobel literature recipients Luigi Pirandello and Eugenio Montale asked themselves these same existential questions. Cesare Pavese searched for his roots, for his identity, for his purpose in life. Without the comfort of religion, this sensitive gentleman felt alone and hopeless. These people wrote of their quest for a purpose and their failure in not finding it. How much desperation we see in those who do not have faith and how much hope there is in those who, even in the most dire circumstances, let the Lord comfort them. In Second Nephi 4.34 we read, O Lord, I have trusted in Thee, and I will trust in Thee forever. I will not put my trust in the arm of the flesh. One of the Lord's most chosen servants, our beloved prophet Joseph Smith, tried for a long time to find the true church by himself. He inquired with many learned people and preachers, but never got the right answer. He did receive perfect knowledge only when he gave himself to the Lord in the sacred grove. 
After that vision, his life was difficult for him. He was persecuted and finally murdered. Nonetheless, he was a forbearing and contented man, a man blessed in many ways, even in adversities. He had faith and trust in the Lord no matter what happened to him. His perspective was eternal. Let's all remember our eternal potential and let's not be limited by our human dimension. We can do it if we're in tune with the Spirit of the Lord and if we accept the guidance of the Holy Ghost. President Spencer W. Kimball has said, and I quote, The Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit and comes into our lives to lead us in the paths of righteousness. Each person on whom authoritative hands have been placed will receive the Holy Ghost. He will lead us unto all truth. And so we are a blessed people with all these special blessings. If one does not receive the great gift of the Holy Ghost, then it is his fault, and that he hasn't been spiritual enough or close enough to Heavenly Father. End of quote. And for those who are not yet baptized and confirmed, our prophets have told us that we all have a sort of a compass to guide us and to tell us what is right and what is wrong in an unmistakably clear way, the divine gift of our conscience. For us, in this estate, there is only one sure way, and I quote again from President Kimball, follow the Holy Spirit within you and follow the prophets, dead and living, end of quote. Another perfect example of complete trust in the Lord comes from the Old Testament. Who does not remember the faith of Abraham when he obeyed the Lord, even to the point of being willing to sacrifice his own son? I don't know if I would be ever able to go that far, and I'm overwhelmed by the greatness of Abraham's faith. I don't believe that the Lord will ask me and you to go that far, but I know that we are all going to be tested one way or another. We are here for this very reason, to be tested and to prove our faith. This reminds me of another incident that happened in the life of my husband's mother. Just a couple of years before her passing, she was a worker in the Provo Temple. She loved attending the temple and working there. She had the early morning shift, and she usually left her home around 5 in the morning and, at age 80, drove to Provo from her Orem home. One January morning, her car would not start. It was very cold and snowing. She tried a few times to get the engine going, but to no avail. She was determined to fulfill her calling and not to disturb anyone at that early hour. After a short prayer to the Lord, she didn't lose courage and started walking at age 80 at 5 in the morning in January and while it was snowing hard. I assure you, I'm not making this up. It is true in every detail. This modern pioneer woman walked half a block and a car stopped next to her. An older gentleman was driving and asked her if he could be of assistance. 
Sister Noble did not want to bother him too much and asked him where he was going to see if their two destinations were nearby. Well, he was also going to the temple and offered her a ride. When that afternoon she called us to take her back home and told us this story, we gently scolded her for not calling us that morning and urged her to promise us not to do it again. Then, with her usual sweetness and calm, she answered back and said, Okay, I'll call you next time and I won't do it again. But you kids, you don't have enough faith. I knew that I would be all right. She said this simply, almost unbelieving of our concern. She was on the Lord's business and he was going to help her. What were we worried about? In today's world, we are faced every day by many challenges and trials. Our modern, technologically advanced world will not be able to furnish all answers, all advice, all support. In an old little book, I found the following words which I believe are still true, and I quote, Astronomy has mapped the heavens and attempted to number the stars, but on its sky chart we find no star of Bethlehem, and in its sky no sun of righteousness. Geology has combed the stratified layers of Earth's foundations, but it has found no rock of ages. Physics, with its electric light, has illuminated cities until the night is banished, but it knows not the light of the world. Mineralogy has sifted the stones of the earth and sounded the depths of the seas, but it has found no pearl of great price. Oh, the unwisdom of this age of the wise! Men, now as never before, by wisdom know not God. End of quote. It is up to us to know the Lord and to be in tune with His Spirit. So, when we are faced with life's challenges, we are ready to ask for help, and more importantly, we are ready to listen and are open to the Lord's comfort. Laman and Lemuel witnessed many miracles and prodigies, yet they were blind to the Spirit and did not recognize the miracles poured upon them. I pray that we can all be ready to always accept the Lord in our lives, and that when in 5, 10, or even 40 years, when we are so discouraged that we, are, that we want to say, I give up, I can't go on like this anymore, we can be alert and responsive to the whispering of the Spirit. Our whole life is a mission for the building of the kingdom. And we all need to feed our spiritual bodies as well as our physical bodies and our minds. We have to do this daily because spiritual salvation is a constant danger today. Many of you have gone on full-time missions and many of you are preparing to go out soon. Relying on the Spirit is the best preparation for missionary work. In 1974, two missionaries who were in Italy came and knocked at my door. My mother was alone at home that day, 
and before letting them in, she looked through the peephole of our door on the seventh floor of the apartment building in which we lived. You see, the week before, one of her friends was attacked in her home while she was alone. Two young men had introduced themselves as employees of a utilities company, and the woman allowed them in the home to check the gas lines. They seized her, hit her in the forehead with a gun, fired a shot in the air to scare her, and robbed her of all her jewelry. My mother had gone to visit that friend in the hospital just a couple of days earlier. Now she was not going to let those two young men with a foreign accent into her house, especially when no one else was there. She told them that she was the maid and that she was not allowed to let anyone in. The two missionaries left, marked my address with a check, and went on to the next home. A few days later, they happened in my neighborhood again, and the same scenario followed. My mother was home alone, and the missionaries were not permitted to enter. You all return missionaries can relate to this experience, and I'm sure that you remember how disappointed you were in similar situations. Well, as you know, after two or three unsuccessful tries, missionaries usually don't go back to the same place and try to find friendlier people. Those two missionaries were later assigned to a different neighborhood and for a while worked in another area of the town. Some time went by. And one day my mother saw a missionary street board in the main square of our town. Her interest was immediately drawn by the pictures and the writings on the board, and she began talking to the missionaries. Suddenly, it started to rain. One of those thick and abrupt rainstorms of central Italy that keep the country beautifully green, but that also catch you by surprise. My mother ran away to take cover, but still had many questions in her mind and didn't have the time to give her name or address to the missionaries. The next day or so, the same first two missionaries happened by, and I underline happened, into my neighborhood again. They were still working in another part of town, but that day they decided to take a different way home. One of the missionaries, as they were walking down the street, asked the other one if they should try again that building on 71 Carducci Street on the seventh floor. His companion told him that it was a waste of time. They had already tried three times before. The first missionary then spoke again to his companion and said, I don't know why, but I know that we have to go back to that residence. I have no explanation, no reason. I just know that I feel that we have to try again. So they went up the stairs, rang the doorbell, waited outside for a little while. My mother was alone again, but that day, that time, she did open the door and she let them in. That missionary is the reason why I am here today why I began attending church, why I was baptized, why I am now married in the temple for time and all eternity, with a beautiful family and eternal blessings awaiting for me.
that missionary listened to the Spirit, and he could listen to the Spirit because he was ready to listen. My life is a miracle, a miracle made possible by the faith of another and by the love of the Lord for me. The Lord is ready to pour his blessings upon us if we just let him do it. He loves us. We are his children. He listens to our prayers. Jonathan Golden Kimball was born in Salt Lake City in 1853. He, with his father, Heber C. Kimball, and with President Brigham Young, visited the settlements of the early saints. He served as a missionary in the southern United States and later was called as president of the Southern State Mission in Chattanooga, Tennessee. In an account of one of his life experiences, he recalls the words of President Wilford Woodruff. And I quote, Now, Brother Kimball, I have had visions. I have had revelations. I have seen angels. But the greatest of all, is that still small voice, end of quote. That is indeed the greatest gift of all, that still small voice to which we are all entitled if we search for it. Pray, stay close to the Lord, read the scriptures, attend church, obey the commandments, have hope and faith in the Lord. We have been taught to pray continually that we may receive the Spirit, that we will not be tempted beyond our strength, that we counsel with the Lord in all our doings, that we do not perform any action without praying to the Father in the name of Christ. We will have trials, but let's accept them as part of this earthly experience. Let's recognize that our lives are a miracle a miracle of love and of innumerable blessings. The Lord loves us and will comfort and help us always. I know this for a fact, a fact as sure and real as I am standing here in front of you today. I echo the words of John A. Whitsow, and I quote, By this faith, which teaches me that I am eternal, with an existence before this life and an ever-active life hereafter, I am given full courage to battle against evil, whether in me or in others. By this faith, my joy in life is abundant, my sorrows are tempered, my trust in the ultimate triumph of good over evil is unshakable. End of quote. I know that I am a daughter of a heavenly Father who loves me. Because of this knowledge, I know where I come from, what I'm doing here, and where I am going. I'm thankful to my parents, who have taught me good principles and have fed both my body and my spirit, unknowingly preparing me to receive the gospel when the right time came. As I mentioned before, I was not born in the church, but the Lord prepared me to be a member when I was still a little girl, when he saved me from death at my birth, when he instilled in my mind the right questions and especially the right spirit. I longed for a prophet. I prayed using my own words, and I needed more knowledge. It wasn't I who was looking for these things. 
It was the Spirit of the Lord who touched my soul. President Brigham Young said, and I quote, When true doctrines are advanced, though they may be new to the hearers, yet the principles contained therein are perfectly natural and easy to be understood, so much so that the hearers often imagined that they had always known them. These arises from the influence of the spirit of truth upon the spirit of intelligence that is within each person. End of quote. Dear brothers and sisters, I know that the church is true. I know that President Hinckley is a prophet of God to guide and to direct us, that we are the children of a loving Heavenly Father. I know that if I am faithful and worthy, I will always receive the blessings of which I am in need. Finally, as I read on one of those emails that bounce from computer to computer and you don't know from where they originated, I quote, May you have enough happiness to make you sweet, enough trials to make you strong, enough sorrows to keep you human, enough hope to bring you joy. And I say these things in the name of our Savior, our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Rely on the Lord Despite Uncertainties, with thoughts from Amy Tanner and Cinzia Donatelli Noble. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.